Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, researchers Alice Marwick, Benjamin Clancy, and Catherine Furl released Far-Right Online Radicalization, a Review of the Literature. The review takes into consideration cross-disciplinary work on radicalization to better understand the present concerns around online radicalization and far-right extremist and fringe movements. In order to learn more about the issues explored in the review, I spoke to Alice Marwick. We spoke about a range of issues, including the current state of knowledge about the spread of far-right ideas, the differences in studying far-right movements in the post-9-11 context, the role of the internet and social media, the relationship to security and law enforcement interests, and where to draw the line, and how these ideas relate to the events of January 6th and the future of American democracy. Here's Alice Marwick. My name is Alice Marwick, and I'm an associate professor of communication and principal researcher at the Center for Information, Technology, and Public Life at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. How would you characterize your research interests? So I study social media. I'm primarily use qualitative and ethnographic methods, and I'm really interested in the social, political, and cultural implications of popular technologies like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And in the last few years, since 2016, my primary research stream has been around far-right disinformation. I'm talking to you today, uh, a day, I think, after the publication of a literature review, uh, Far-Right Online Radicalization. You start this out with a kind of level set. You say that from, quote, the standpoint from which media, popular culture, and academia have often approached radicalization, the assumption that to study the radical is to study the other. However, white supremacy and racism are hardly new phenomena in America. You say that using the term radicalization suggests there is something novel and exotic about the spread of ideas that were actually fundamental to the founding of the U.S. Why did you feel it was important to sort of start this with that level set? So when you're studying far-right in general, or far-right cultures, most of these cultures are based on white supremacy as a sort of foundational aspect or a foundational ideology. And when people have been using this term far-right radicalization, radicalization itself as a term has a really specific history. It comes out of this post 9-11 context where people were trying to figure out how to prevent further terrorist attacks that were primarily coming out of jihadi communities. And at the time, there's this gigantic global security apparatus with a lot of money to try to understand why people who in many cases had grown up in, for example, the UK or the US were committing terrorist acts, so acts of political violence based on jihadi ideology. And so the idea of radicalization was actually seen as a sort of more progressive way to combat this phenomenon than previous efforts, which had been very Islamophobic and had often pulled in entire Muslim communities in this dragnet. Islamophobia is very dominant in the United States, right? Like just go back to like Edward Said and Orientalism, like this idea of the Middle East as the sort of like mysterious place of the other is like pretty foundational to American society. And for years, there was this assumption in 
early studies of terrorism, that there was something intrinsic to Islam that made people violent. Now, of course, now we know that that's absolutely untrue. And the rather than just painting everyone who is Islamic with the same brush, radicalization was a way to say, hey, there's certain strains of this jihadi ideology that perhaps are more likely to make people commit political violence. And we want to find out how that process happens and we want to stop it. However, since there's been a lot of really great critical terrorism scholars who've pointed out that that perspective on radicalization basically still is Islamophobic and still others, the global Muslim community, which is like a billion people. And so a lot of these studies of radicalization did stuff like they surveilled mosques So they singled out particular people and looked at their social networks and tried to identify people who might be at risk of committing political violence. Now, in general, most of these programs have not worked. They haven't been really successful. Um, And that's because it's very hard to determine who's going to commit political violence. And even if you have people in an organization where some of them are likely to commit terrorist acts, others are not. And trying to figure out why some people commit violence while others don't is almost an impossible task. So you take this term with all of its baggage that's coming from this perspective and you put it onto the far right and it just doesn't fit because the idea of radicalization is so firmly based in this othering of Islam as this like mystical, mysterious, like orientalist, you know, culture and religion that when you try to apply that to something that in many cases is being parroted by very mainstream politicians that is appearing in mainstream media, that is appearing in a large hyper-partisan media that is funded, you know, that is a US-based media, it just doesn't work. But before I threw the baby out with the bathwater, I wanted to really delve deeply into this radicalization literature and say, well, you know, there's a lot of smart people who have worked on this for 30 years. What can we learn from this literature? And how can we apply it to this phenomenon of people taking on far right and fringe ideas that they encounter online, and then in a very small percentage of cases, committing political violence based on those ideologies. So in a way, you're, you're kind of trying to rescue the best of the work on radicalization in order to move to a new place. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the ideal. I think the problem is that what I found was that radicalization research, when you get into the actual empirics of the kind of people who aren't just throwing around political rhetoric, but are actually on the ground doing these studies, you find a lot of uncertainty. You know, there's been all this research that's tried to determine, like, who commits political violence. And it's not about your personality traits. It's not about whether you're mentally ill. It's not about whether you're in poverty. It's not about whether you're a member of a marginalized group. None of those things predict political violence. Um, In fact, there's a whole body of research that looks at pathways to radicalization or pathways to terrorism. And basically what that concludes is that the pathways are so individual and are so contextual that the same factor that might in some cases cause someone to commit political violence might prevent another person from committing political violence. So one of the studies that I really enjoyed was a study where this woman who did ethnographic work on women who were part of the El Salvadorian guerrilla movement in the 1980s. So like really incredible work, right? Like a researcher going to El Salvador and interviewing all these women who were involved in like a radical political movement. And she found that, for example, becoming a mother, which is a very typical part of many women's life cycle. In some cases, women were like, oh, I can't, you know, I got to 
take a step back from this political movement because it's too dangerous and I have to be there for my kids. And, you know, I'm just past that stage of my life. So in that case, motherhood prevented them from committing political violence. But there was another group of women who were like, well, I need to be a great role model for my kids and I need a better future for my children. And the best way to do that is to, for my group to obtain their political goals. And so for them, motherhood was a catalyzing element towards committing political violence. So basically what most of this research finds is that any programs that are trying to detect radicalization, whether that's through computational methods or social science methods or outreach or civil society groups or activism, are mostly going to fail if they're focused on looking for commonalities between people who commit political violence. So I would encourage people to look at the review. You get into you know, what makes people vulnerable to radicalization, issues uh, that are individual, psychological characteristics, systemic causes, movement level causes, uh, other structural paths. And then how are people radicalized? You talk about pathways and pyramids, social networks, relational approaches, um, and this idea of radicalization as agented meaning-making, what does that mean? Yeah, that's really getting into the weeds of academic language, right? So basically, there's all these different strands of research. There's a set of people that were trying to figure out this universal pathway to radicalization, which I, you know, which are basically be found that it's too different. You can't come up with one single path to radicalization. There's another group of people who tried to use social network analysis to map out, like, are you in contact with people who are radicalized or who are in these politically violent groups, are you then more likely to commit political violence? I think that's a slightly more useful area of research when you're talking about the far right. But basically what we find is that what actually makes people more likely or not even more likely to commit political violence, but more likely to justify the use of political violence is for them to take on the same ways of thinking and feeling as a radical group. And so if we're looking at the far right, um, you know, I'm doing a bunch of other research on this right now and I'm spending a lot of time in far right online groups and reading texts from these groups. And you see that there's these ways of thinking about oneself as a victim and about seeing people of color specifically or immigrants or feminists or trans people or queer people as the enemy, as the other. And it's, you take on that positionality. You become, you, you think the same way that the other people in the group think. And if you see yourself as having the moral high ground and the other people as being the enemy who in some way are victimizing you, whether it's by trying to, you know, you're threatening white culture, you're taking economic opportunities away from white people, you're threatening white children, you're threatening the white family, all of these things make it more likely that you're going to justify committing violence against these people because they become a threat to you. And whether or not they're actually a threat to you is of no consequence. It's about this threat perception. And so to me, that is a really fruitful area of research when it comes to the far right, because we, we know very well from great work by many other scholars that a lot of the appeals to white identity that are used in mainstream in far-right rhetoric are also diffused into mainstream right-wing rhetoric, right? You know, and especially former President Trump, I think was definitely somebody who amplified a lot of these messages around like, you know, America used to be great, now it's no longer great. And the people who are not making it great are immigrants and they're people from, you know, these S-hole countries and they're people who are coming in and they're dangerous and they're threatening our way of life. 
So you can see a really clear through line between that type of mainstream rhetoric and taking on these far right or white nationalist or white supremacist values. And I think that's extremely troublesome and that's distinctly different from the way that we see radicalization talked about when it is used to describe, you know, Islamic or jihadi movements instead. So you eventually get on to what is the role of the internet in radicalization? And you talk about uh, issues around platform affordances with a bit of a focus on YouTube, um, I'd say. And then, you know, generally online discourse and, and how all this fits together. What, what is the role of the internet in your assessment? I think that's the ultimate question is how does the internet contribute to this process? So on one hand, there's this large body of research on how social media, mostly YouTube, contributes to radicalization. And most of this literature talks about how you go onto YouTube, you go on looking for something innocuous, right? Like maybe you're looking for a video about the president or you're looking for a video on the environment or something. Um, And then very quickly, you find yourself in this rabbit hole of far-right content. And so a great deal of emphasis on combating online radicalization has been targeted towards platform companies trying to get them to deplatform people who are pushing this type of content, but also to change their recommendation algorithms so that people aren't being recommended far-right content. I think that is still very important, and I think it's a very fruitful area of research. You know, a former co-author of mine, Becca Lewis, who's now at Stanford, has done extensive work on how even pretty mainstream right-wing channels like Ben Shapiro contribute to mainstreaming the ideas of white supremacists like Stefan Molyneux. Um, I think that's still something that we have to be mindful of and not make false distinctions between some of these, these types of content. But on the other hand, I think it's a bridge too far to say just because people are being exposed to online content that they're then taking up the ideas in that online content. And I, my co-author Katie Furl spent some time going through a lot of the computational social science studies of online radicalization. And I have to say, we were shocked that even when online radicalization is in the title and the abstract, that there was no definition of what online radicalization was that virtually no radicalization literature was cited. And again, these are like large bodies of research with like hundreds of scholars working actively in these areas. And frequently they were saying, you know, exposure to extremist content equals radicalization, which is just not the way that media works. So what I can say about this literature is that it seems very clear that the internet contributes to mainstreaming extremist ideas, that it does put them in front of a larger audience of people. I think also because there's so many opportunities on the internet, not just in mainstream social media communities or mainstream social media sites, but in all kinds of online communities and in smaller sites like uh, Telegram and specific hashtags or groups or communities on TikTok, but also like forums, message boards, like Facebook groups, whatever. There's lots of places where people are holding these ideas about the threat to white people from people of color, the threat to men from feminists, the threat to straight people from trans people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And within these communities, you can have that kind of meaning making and taking on the thoughts and feelings of people in your community because there aren't any other ideas in these communities, right? If people are moderate or they disagree with the thoughts and beliefs based in these communities, they usually leave and go somewhere else. 
And so you do have this sort of effect where sometimes these get more and more extreme um, in their belief systems. So I've been looking at a lot of far-right telegram channels. And one of the things to me that's interesting is they tend to have several themes that get repeated over and over again. So in some of the white supremacist telegram channels I'm in, you'll frequently see people post news stories where Black people are committing crimes. And those you see those every day, right? You might see 10 or 15 news stories a day about a Black person committing crimes. Sure, Black people commit crimes. So do white people. So do Latinx people, right? So do Asian American people. But none of those stories are in there. So you end up getting these chambers where I don't like to use the term echo chamber or filter bubble because I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. But you do end up getting these communities where a single point of view is pushed very heavily. Um, and I think it does make people more likely to take on the points of view that they're seeing in these channels or these spaces, given just the amount of repetition of content and sort of the encouragement from other people to take up this belief system. One of the things you kind of hint at with regard to the role of the internet that I think about a lot is the kind of long-term implications of exposure to content. So not, you know, I saw a few YouTube videos that either I found in the long tail of stuff that I was looking for in the search tab, or perhaps, you know, I happened to see in the recommendations column. But the idea that certain ideas have come to pervade the media, pervade society, you know, whether it's Breitbart or Tucker Carlson, and that over time, those things, you know, ultimately do have an impact and do, I suppose, lead people to uh, far right ideas. And, and that's the bigger problem. But, you know, it's hard to kind of study that with a deprivation study for Facebook or something. I mean, how do you, how do you get at that? I mean, Facebook's still playing or YouTube still playing a huge role in that. There's still a major channel for that activity. And yet, I don't know, how do you think about their responsibility in that context? Well, there's a couple of questions there. So the first is, how do we study the long-term effects of media messaging? And in media and communication studies, we often look at what's called cultivation theory in the work of a media theorist named George Gerbner. And George Gerbner was interested in the long-term effects of television, specifically around violence. And so he did these longitudinal studies where he measured people's attitudes towards various social issues over long periods of time. What Gerbner found was that watching this type of content over a long period of time led to what he called the mean world syndrome, which is basically that viewing a lot of cop shows or local news, which has the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of point of view. It makes people more fearful about the world around them. It leads them to greatly overestimate the rates of crime. It leads them to distrust their neighbors. It leads them to isolate themselves. These are obviously not pro-social effects, right? Like these are things that are bad for society. But I don't think anybody would say like, oh, the TV, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see that as being the long-term effects unless you had done this type of study. It wasn't so much about the, the specific news stories themselves, but it was about the patterns of news coverage over a long period of time. When it comes to social platform responsibility, it's really difficult because as you know, social platforms will say that they are just hosting this content, they're not providing editorial functions, and the scope and scale of the sheer amount of content on a site like YouTube means that there's realistically no way for content to be moderated at the level that it might need to be in order to make sure that this type of messaging isn't, you know, isn't promoted. I think 
also, it's important to remember that a lot of this messaging is really mainstream, right? The idea that immigrants are dangerous is found all over the place. And even though it may not be accurate, it is a mainstream talking point and part of mainstream political rhetoric. So how do you cut that off without violating people's free speech rights? How do you cut that off without making it seem like you're biased against a particular point of view? Because the lines between mainstream and extremist rhetoric are so porous, uh, I think it's a real challenge. And one of the things that I want to do with my work is point out the porosity of this and say, we need to stop thinking about this stuff as extremists. We need to stop thinking about this stuff as radical and start rec- like start grappling with and reckoning with the fact that ideas that just 10 years ago would have been seen as unspeakable are now things that people encounter every day. And what are the implications of that? And unfortunately, I think one of the implications of that is that we're going to see increased justification for political violence and more propensity for things like the January 6th attacks. Ultimately, is online radicalization a useful concept? We do not think that radicalization is a useful concept to think about people taking up far right and fringe ideas that they encounter online. I'm not exactly sure what we should replace it with. That's kind of my the project I'm working on right now. But a few of the literatures that we've been looking at are the literature around mainstreaming. So mainstreaming is a primary strategy that far right groups have adopted in the last like 10, 15 years to try to get their viewpoints into mainstream rhetoric. So one of the things that's really interesting about studying the far right is a lot of the studies come out of Europe because in Europe, which has generally European countries have many political parties. In Europe, you often see a radical right party or a far right party that is a party that has seats in parliament that runs people for office, but that is very what we would consider to be far right, like they're anti-immigration, they're in some cases like explicitly white nationalists. In the United States, we don't have a multi-party system, we have a two-party system. So the political strategy that the far right in the United States has adopted is to try to mainstream their points of view through the Republican Party. So take the party that they felt would be most sympathetic to their points of view and try to push far right ideas through that. And unfortunately, I think we can all agree that that's been pretty successful, especially with the candidacy and you know presidency of Donald Trump. And then we see other you know far right and more, more far right candidates being elected to office around the country. I think mainstreaming is actually a very generative concept to use to think about this. And I think that it gets us away from this idea of the radical and the other, and instead helps us see these commonalities and messaging and sort of how a lot of these messages are on a continuum rather than being like on one side or the other. The second concept we've been drawing from is the idea of conversion, which comes out of religious studies. And is like when somebody becomes like a born again Christian, and there's this sort of idea that they've you know, had this moment and their entire life has changed. Um, And this is a concept that I think resonates a lot with the people in these communities who often talk about their red pill moments, which they often phrase as if it's a single moment where they realize that everything they've been told is a lie and the scales fell from their eyes. And all of a sudden they realize that like feminism was a lie or white people are superior or whatever it is that they believe that they've had this red pill moment. 
And we've, we see a lot of that happening in these communities, that people will discuss their red pill moment, they'll talk about how it feels. And this is very similar to how people talk about conversion. But in actuality, it's much closer to a process of socialization. And it's not usually something where, you know, you're on the road of Damas to Damascus and there's like a light in your eyes and you fall down and you're like, oh, I've been red pilled. That's really not generally how these things work. But I think the literature might give us some really interesting insights into how it does work. And the third literature we've been really looking at is literatures on fringe communities that aren't necessarily political. So stuff on flat earthers or there's a internet group called Otherkin who are people who believe that they're actually animals or mythical creatures. Um, and there's a really interesting, or people in like UFO communities. So people who are basically taking up viewpoints that are counterfactual to the mainstream, um, but they're still believing them. So what can we learn from these studies? Because they're much more about conventional online communities. And people have been studying online communities since the early 90s. So we have kind of a lot of literature on that and a lot of good studies on that. So that's what we're doing right now is we're kind of delving into that literature to see what might be a better concept than radicalization to describe people taking up these ideas they encounter online. So I want to get you to speculate a little bit about maybe some of the downstream implications of your work. You know, I was listening yesterday to a talk uh, by someone who is expert on, you know, the global internet form to counter terrorism, the GIFCT, um, who was talking about uh, this whole category of TVEC content, you know, the terrorist, violent, extremist content. And those ideas and kind of modes of working and engineered systems, there's an enormous amount of investment into thinking about radicalization and thinking about, you know, how to kind of prevent social platforms from playing a role in it or from spreading the worst artifacts of it. How do you think that behavior or that activity may change if you know the ideas that you're exploring here are potentially adopted? I am not an expert on jihadi radicalization. That's not my research area. And I would defer to people who are experts in that area. I think it's very clear that there are a lot of jihadi movements like Al-Qaeda who have used the internet to try to reach out to young people around the world and get them involved in their, you know, in their political violence and their movements for political violence. Um, and I think that's a pretty well-trod path. There's entire databases of the types of content that these groups put out. There's people who spend their lives studying the types of videos that are made by these groups or the types of messaging that they have. Um, I think that's a, you know, that's something that I feel like there is great critical work in terrorism studies and radicalization studies that hasn't necessarily filtered down to that practical countering violent extremism on the groundwork. And I, I'm not going to do anything to change that. The place where I specifically want to make an intervention is in applying these models to the far right. The United States in general has been very loath to use the same tools to tackle domestic terrorism that they have been to tackle foreign terrorism. And there's some good reasons for that. Like there's progressive abolitionists who don't think that it would be a good idea because it just increases the carceral apparatus. If you look about look at who may be labeled a domestic terrorist, like President Trump and many people on the right believe that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. They believe that Antifa is a terrorist organization, right? If you open these tools up to people, there is a chance that they're going to be used against people of all political persuasions and stripes. That makes me nervous. Like, that's not something that I necessarily want to point to. So I'm fairly ambivalent on the question of whether domestic terrorism should or should not be a crime. 
But I think if we're going to start trying to counter the increase in far-right political violence, then understanding how that happens and not trying to take a body of literature that was developed in a completely different cultural and national context and apply it to something that in many cases is very deeply rooted in histories of the United States, in families, in communities, in the, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are as Americans, that's not going to work. So that's where I'd like to make that intervention is as we start moving towards countering far-right political violence with a toolbox, let's make it a toolbox that it's, that's actually appropriate for the problem that we're trying to solve. Coming back to January 6th, um, you know, there's a select committee, which is tasked with a range of different things. One of them is looking at the role of online platforms in the uh, in, in the events of January 6th, it, whether those online platforms played a role in facilitating or uh, otherwise enabling or empowering the individuals who attacked the Capitol. Um, how does this thinking kind of fit with your considerations around, around January 6th as an event, which I know you've also written about? So my colleague Francesca Tripodi and I submitted a report to the select committee on January 6th. And we were specifically looking at different ways in which there was a feedback loop between stuff that was going on in social media and mainstream politicians and the Trump administration. So one of the things we talk about in the report is the stop the steal groups that were seen as being very organic, but the term was actually created by Roger Stone. Um, it was right. Re- he had registered the domain back in 2016. And it was a narrative that had been primed by Donald Trump for months and months and months and months leading up to the election. Right. Um, in another example, the conspiracy theory that Dominion voting machines were converting votes for Trump to votes for Biden is actually a theory that comes out of an 8chan board where QAnon research is going on. And it gets picked up extremely quickly by people in the Trump administration and then all the way up to Trump himself. So one of the things we need to understand is that this is not stuff that's happening in a vacuum online, that this is part of a larger ecosystem, which includes hyperpartisan publications, mainstream conservative media, and mainstream conservative politicians. And so if we ignore that part of the loop, then we ignore the role of political elites in spreading disinformation, which I think is incredibly important because it's very easy to say, oh, this is Facebook's fault. This is YouTube's fault. This is Twitter's fault. And yes, I think the internet certainly makes it easier for these ideas to spread. And it definitely makes it easier for people to coordinate direct action like the January 6th attack. But you can't take the responsibility off of this other half of the equation. And so that's that's sort of what I, I'm hoping that the January 6th commission is sort of able to, you know, to express is the culpability of different people in the administration and different political elites in what happened on January 6th. That it wasn't just an isolated incident that came out of the internet, that it had, you know, several years of history leading up to it, and that it was a you know, a a sort of participatory process between all these different actors working in tandem. I feel like we have to somehow preserve, you know, certainly blame where blame is due with those political elites and other actors in that ecosystem, as well as the individuals who ultimately injured police uh, and, and broke down doors and windows. And yet, you know, 
it doesn't seem right to let Facebook off the hook either for, for the role that it played and which it identified in its own research. Um, so I don't know. I, I hope that the committee is able to kind of get across that nuance in these public hearings that are coming. I mean, I think it's a really complicated issue. I think the question of how much do we bring social platforms into it, you know, frequently when I do my work and I kind of talk in public about how these issues are really complicated, people are like, oh, you're just trying to let Facebook off the hook. And I'm absolutely not trying to let Facebook off the hook. Um, One of the most interesting things about the Facebook papers to me was the extent to which Facebook has known all along about the problems on its platform and has been very disingenuous publicly about things like, you know, spreading disinformation or having, you know, inculcating communities of people who are talking about these things. I think the best thing Facebook could do would be to listen to its internal researchers, because I think it's important to remember that these gigantic corporations are not monoliths and that there are a lot of good actors and people who work at Facebook who honestly want to work for a company that is doing good things for the world and want to prevent problems from happening on the platform. But in talking to various researchers and people who work in trust and safety teams and things like that, I found that often if these researchers or these workers are advocating for changes that go against the sort of growth impetus of the platform, any changes they suggest are going to be shot down. Like if they are like, oh, we want to add these like anti-harassment messages or we want to do this. And if Facebook's growth team finds out that it causes a 0.002% decrease in the number of people who use the platform, they're not going to implement that. Um, So I would really like to see Facebook actually take a look at the kinds of great work that are being done internally and pay attention to the people who are saying like, no, actually, this could make the platform better and safer for people. But that's very difficult. That's, an, that's, that, that's not going to add shareholder value right away, right? Like, it, it's not really how big tech companies work with what their priorities are. I should hope they can ultimately, eventually, someday, somehow take a decision to maybe maybe follow the advice of those researchers, particularly when it comes to these very serious matters, rather than following their commercial interests. But something tells me that may be too much to ask. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize value. In the months since January 6, 2021, there has been a renewed focus on far-right extremism in the United States. The administration's come out with a strategy for contending with it. Um, the FBI has made various investments and changes to focus on it. The Department of Homeland Security has done the same, and, and I presume quite a lot of the other law enforcement and intelligence apparatus across the country. We've even seen the FBI invest in more social media monitoring tools and tender at least for what it calls kind of predictive analytics. And I I sort of sense that baked into that is this idea that computational social scientists are eventually going to create dashboards that are going to allow us to predict when certain communities or people may be about to commit political violence. What do you make of that? Well, I'm not a fan. Uh, This is getting into my other research stream, which is on online privacy. And these types of predictive analytics or predictive algorithms, they sound great because the idea is, well, we're going to take out human judgment. We're going to make a scientific judgment based on the numbers. We're going to use these cutting edge big data techniques to figure things out. The problem is that all of these algorithms and 
predictive capacities of these different technologies. They're very prone to failure. They're very prone. They are absolutely subject to the quality of the data that's fed into them, which is already always full of bias. Like any data scientist will tell you that data itself is very like messy and murky. It's not as clean cut or as clean as people would have you believe. And often there's absolutely no check on the power of these algorithms. So for example, predictive policing algorithms are really problematic because they often suck up information from social media completely decontextualized. And they make it, it's the sort of minority report situation where just by associating with people who may be in a social network with somebody who's committed some kind of crime or is perceived to have committed some kind of crime can make you also seem like a threat. And these often these tools are used most harshly on members of already marginalized communities. Um, I am not a fan of these approaches at all. I think they are very simplistic. I think they massively increase surveillance. I think there are plenty of things that we already know about <laughs> in terms of low hanging fruit. Like for example, we know that there are lots of people who are members of militias or the far right who are involved in local police around the country. That is a known issue. The FBI has written about it. It is something that could easily be, well, maybe not easily, but it's something that doesn't require algorithms to identify. Like these people are putting pictures of themselves on Instagram with white power insignias, or, you know, these, there's, there's so many things that could be done that are more messy and complicated and require resources that are not as neat and clean as these algorithms, but would probably actually do more to prevent the problem. I generally am against predictive algorithms in social services or policing because I think they're intrinsically biased and often hurt the people they're supposed to protect. Alice, what's next? What's the next big project? So the next project is figuring out how do people come to believe these ideas that they encounter on social media. So we've been doing this three-part research project for the last year and a half. Uh, we've been analyzing discussions of how people got red-pilled in far-right forums on Reddit, Gab, Discord. Uh, the second part is doing ethnographic fieldwork on far-right Telegram and conspiracy TikTok. And what I'm doing right now is that I'm interviewing people who have taken up alternative or fringe ideas that they've encountered online that are not far-right ideas. So I'm interviewing conspiracy theorists, Bigfoot enthusiasts, people who are into astral projection. Um, it's been a really, really interesting project. And I'm learning a lot about how people are converted to different belief systems, what counts as evidence online, uh, how these communities sort of function. And I'm hoping in the next year or so to have sort of ideally a kind of big theory of how these things happen. Well, when that theory is ready, I hope you'll come back and tell me more about it. Absolutely, Justin. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guest. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.